Hey friends, it's Fred Greenhalgh, producer here at Realm. A new episode of Ominous Thrill is ready for your ears. It's Advice After Dark. Late night radio host Belladonna delivers extreme advice to the delighted horror of her audience until a creepy listener forces her to confront the brutal consequences of her show. Here's a preview. Welcome to my live stream, Bella. Say hello to everyone. What do you want? Click the link. Watch along. I'm not clicking links from psychos. You put that trash on the radio every night and I'm the psycho. You sound like you need help. I'm not one of your fake callers. My show is very, very real. Do you want to know what it's called? No, I don't. It's called Belladonna Gets What's Coming. Starring you. What? It's really starring me. But it's all about you. And you'd be surprised how many people want to watch you get what's coming. I called the police. They'll be here any minute. Yeah, well, we should be done before they get here. Find Ominous Thrill out now, everywhere you listen. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Travelcast, episode 379. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, we bring you a great, creepy story called Water Spots by Rebecca Gomez Reda. Rebecca is a young author from Pennsylvania. Her previous speculative fiction publishing credits include works in Mirror Dance, The Surreal Grotesque, The Ware Traveler, and Apocrypha and Abstractions. This is the story's first publishing. So without further ado, we bring you Water Spots by Rebecca Gomez Reda. They found your brother. Her mother leaves the sentence unfinished, and she wants to tell her not to go on. He can be anywhere, in the water, in the fire, and in the end, there's little difference between burnt bones and waterlogged bones. Did you hear me? I said they found your brother. Hmm. So she'd have his bones. What did she want with them? Rachel, they found Charlie. He's at a hospital upstate. He's alive. Someone noticed him lying in the street, the nurse says to her once they get into the room. When he came in, his hair was stuck to his face with mud. Rachel narrows her eyes as she presses her skinny fingers into Charlie's temple. His skin is colder and paler than she remembers it. Do you know what happened? Her mother asks, looking at Rachel's probing fingers like she isn't sure whether or not to push them away. There was no evidence of physical injuries, but he's clearly traumatized. Ever since he's been here, he hasn't spoken a single word. As her mother starts to whimper, Rachel realizes that she could give him a scar if she pressed in hard enough with her nails. 
His eyes are closed, and even though the nurse warns her to be gentle with him, she passes her fingers over them and presses. Charlie, she says, like she's scolding him. When he opens his eyes, they're wide and they're burning, and they stare at a spot on her cheek for much too long. But they are his eyes. They are their eyes, dark and round and familiar even in their panic. You can't stay here. Three months earlier, he'd sneered at her after dinner like he was in on a joke and she wasn't. She'd laughed about it, loved him for it, because the curve of his lips was the curve of hers. That night, when he told her he was going out, she didn't say anything to stop him. She only reminded him to watch out for the rain and to not wake her up when he came back. We have to go home, Charlie, she tells him, remembering how it felt to find his bed empty in the morning. Chipper-looking men and women with grating voices and sympathetic smiles tell them what they should and shouldn't do. Feed him this, give him that, push him here, leave him there. They swarm her parents first and tell Rachel simply to be strong. It's an absolute waste. Come on, she says, taking his larger hand and pulling him towards her as gently as she can. He can only stare as she cups his cheek in her palm and taps at an old scar. His room is three months empty, and it seems to shift on its axis when she walks him inside with a hand on his elbow to keep him upright. She doesn't ask him what needs to be asked, only sits him down on his bed and watches him, shushing him when he lets out scared little noises. Honestly, her hand is shaking as she smooths down a lock of his hair. They match that way. I'm your little sister, remember? What can I do to you? She feels him watch her back as she leaves and thinks that he must recognize her just fine. She doesn't need to be taught how to care for him. Before he'd disappeared, they'd been friends, laughing at the same jokes and playing the same games with matching expressions, matching freckles across the nose. In a few days, her kindness takes the fear from him. He's still mute, but at least smiles, at least nods or shakes his head to answer her questions and glares at her when she's sarcastic. Her parents ask her how he is. She resents them for it. Better, she tells them. Later, her mother calls Rachel's aunt, and soon there are other children at her doorstep, cousins she used to see every weekend. I can't believe they found him, one of the youngest says, looking like she's close to tears. Can we see him? She finds Charlie in the bathtub, hands pruned and eyes droopy as though he'd just woken from a nap. What are you taking another bath for? You took a shower this morning. She tugs at his arm, and he leaves the warm water with a sour expression and a shiver. There are people here to see you, people that missed you, family. She leads him into the living room with a hand on his wrist, but even though he's extra clean, his cousins flinch when they see him. She clears her throat, trying to break up the silence, but no one offers up any words to make up for it. He can't talk, you know. Some of her cousins looked shocked at the sharpness of her voice, but others just continued to gape. They look from Rachel to Charlie like they've both lost their minds, and Rachel can't take more than a minute of it before she's hot with outrage. If you're so uncomfortable, then why don't you just leave? It's more of a command than a question. Many of her cousins turn and run, Charlie's hurt and Rachel's anger proving too much to handle, but one boy stays behind. Rachel sees him give the exit a frantic look of longing before he turns back to her. Rachel? His voice shakes, and she hates him for it. I need to talk to you. 
He stares hard at her brother, and she can feel him flinch against her shoulder. Just get out, she tells him. Her cousin looks at her helplessly and takes her wrist in his hand and pulls. His fingers sting on her skin. Isn't there somewhere else he can stay while he gets better? She'd never noticed how unpleasant it is to have words whispered into her ear. Rachel, listen to me. It's much easier to throw him out. She goes to her brother's room that night. He's all wrapped up in blankets, but she can see the curls of his hair peeking out of the cocoon, and it makes her smile. I don't care what happened to you, she says, sitting beside the peak of hair. She hears the blankets rustle as he lifts his head, and it hits her that he had only been pretending to be asleep, and had probably only been pretending to be asleep the other nights she'd checked on him. You're still my brother. She slides her body down until she's able to curl around the blankets at his back so she can press her cheek against the covered jut of his shoulder, and after a few minutes, she falls asleep. He doesn't. When she sees him again, his mouth is blue. The water is colder than she remembers. She wants to tell him to watch, to watch her swim, keep looking, but he can't. The spaces where his eyes should be shine a lovely pearly white, and she wants to trace the sheen with her fingertips. The water is cold enough to hurt, and his grip is tight enough to keep her under. He doesn't speak to her the way he sometimes does in dreams, just opens and closes his mouth like a fish, and it makes her giggle. The bubbles she makes rise over her head. There is her brother, and he's being dumb as usual. Why is he grabbing her like that, like he's afraid she'd swim away if he let her go? Where's your tongue, Charlie? Where's your tongue gone? It's not in your mouth. He should let her look for it. She wakes up shaking with her brother's hands on her shoulders and the taste of blood in her mouth. She'd been shivering so violently she'd bitten her tongue, and she folds it in on itself, trying to rub away the hurt. You took me with you, she says, pressing her palms flat against the bed. She can barely hear him breathing. You took me with you. She doesn't notice the smell for a few days, but when she does, she can barely keep herself from throwing up. Her brother reeks, like rust and salt and gasoline and blood and a million other vile scents in one. She asks her parents about it because she can't believe she didn't notice it, but they play dumb, mumbling into their hands and hiding from her eyes. She doesn't realize Charlie had overheard her until she catches him scrubbing his skin raw during the fourth bath of the day. That's enough. That's enough. It's okay. She has to get in close to pull his nails out of his arm, but she's able to breathe through her mouth and bear it. It's all right. He still can't talk, can't thank her, but he lets her kneel behind him and dry his hair. She falls asleep in his bed again and dreams of fire. When she wakes up, it's to her mom's scream and a hunting knife waved near her face. Her dad's knuckles are white around the handle, and she can feel her brother shaking with fear beside her, curled in on himself with his hands covering his face. What are you doing? She sits up onto her knees, but a tug at her elbow has her falling back and her dad lurching forward. Don't touch her! Her dad spits while her mom watches helplessly from outside the room. Get away from her! Her dad swings his knife again, dangerously close to Rachel's cheek. Her brother had made himself so small that when Rachel pushes him behind her and sits up, he's hidden from their father completely. Rachel, move, her dad says with frustration. The wild look in her father's eyes knocks the breath out of her, but when she feels her brother's hands grip her shoulders, she finds her voice. 
Leave him alone, she says, stretching her arms out in an attempt to make herself look bigger than she is. Are you crazy? I'm not letting you hurt my brother. Rachel, her mom's voice reminds her of her cousins right before she'd kicked him out. Rachel, that's not your brother. Charlie freezes, and the air in Rachel's lungs does the same. We got a call just now. They found him in the river today. His body'd been in the water for weeks, Rachel. Her shoulders sear with pain, but she can't find the breath to scream. Rachel, her father holds his hand out like he's trying to coax a skittish animal from its hiding place, and she recoils. Rachel, come here. It's not the right voice, not the voice she wants, and she can't help but flinch back into the body behind her, false as it is. She's betrayed Charlie. Of course she has. Accepting that thing as him was the worst betrayal she can think of. She'd let it sleep in his bed, for God's sakes. She'd stayed by its side and acted as its protector and loved it enough to burn herself out. She wants to run, to leave. She swears she does, but the thing that isn't her brother says a single word, and her waterlogged ears pop. The tone is wrong. It's twisted and harsh, and it sounds like he's speaking through glass on his tongue or a hole in his throat. She looks over her shoulder and catches its face as it shifts, just a little bit. There's something gummy about the cheeks, something off about the freckles. They've stopped matching hers, but she decides it's enough anyway. She shuts her eyes and falls onto her side. She'd never been any good at saying no to Charlie. When she wakes up, she's in her bed with a different shirt on and achy marks on her shoulders. It's been days since she slept in her own bed, and for a moment she's not sure where she is. Charlie? she calls, remembering too late that her brother no longer speaks. If she's in her bedroom, then Charlie must be right down the hall. Her fists are clenched as she steps over the fallen figures on the floor and makes her way to his room. I'm coming in she warns before she pushes his door open. Her brother's head snaps up when he hears her close footsteps, and something in her stomach turns painful when she sees his eyes, black like coal and aberrant. Honestly, she says with a sigh, leaving him for a moment to go get a washcloth. She returns to an expression that is more guarded than it has any right to be. Hold still, she says, as she swipes the washcloth lightly across his chin, where the worst of the gore is gathered. What a mess. Come on, how old are you? His only response is to grip her thin wrist with his filthy hand. Knock it off, she says, schooling her face into a stern expression, and he eases his hold on her and lets her arm fall against her thigh. What, are you scared again? His eyes are too dark to read properly, but she thinks he looks more startled than scared. If she thinks about why that is, she'll lose her nerve, so instead she fakes a frown and puts her little hand against his cheek, thumbing at the blood near his temples. They'd always had the same eyes. If his are black, then hers must be, too. You took me with you, she says to her brother, to the cut above his eyebrow and the thick black tongue suspended in his mouth. You took me with you to the bottom of the river. Her wrist bleeds where he'd touched it. She forgives him for it.
was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you're ready for next week when we officially launch our seventh annual Women and Aliens Month. We have four great stories written by women about aliens and one B-side story for you premium content subscribers out there. Starting things off with Down the Well by Alea Don Johnson, The Four Generations of Change E by Zen Cho, Sun, Moon, Cat, Man by Julia Reynolds, and Unafi Battles the Black Hairballs by Lauren Bukes, and closing things out with The Wanderers by Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam as our B-Sides episode. I can't wait. For now, though, let's go to our 100-character story winner this week by first-time winner Scarcrow. Here it is. I met the alien. We shook hands. I smiled. It became angry. I coughed. It forgave me. We have much to learn from each other. Think you can write a good story with only 100 characters, not counting spaces? Of course you can, my friend. Go to the Drabblecast discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. Look for the TwitFix section. It's open to all to participate, and you might be next week's winner. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, Travelcast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Lissa Kwan. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, you're still my brother. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.